children and one grandchild. Joko Beck was her first teacher. This year marks the 20th anniversary of practicing at BZC, though her first appearance, appearance was at Dwight Way in the 70s with her then boyfriend Ron Nestor. <laughs> she received the precept from Sojin Roshi in 2010 and was Shuso in 2018. Her Dharma name is Maiko or Maiko Taishin which means Dancing Light, Open Heart. Please give a warm welcome to Dancing Heart. <laughs> <laughs> open Light. <laughs> Thank you, Russ. And good morning and welcome to all of you in the Zendo. It's really so nice to see you in person. It just seems like it's been so long. And, um, and on Zoom. Thank you for joining on Zoom as well. Um, this is the first talk I've given in the Zendo since uh, the pandemic started, <clears throat> and I was you so in 2018, and I probably gave a talk or two after that, but this is really bringing back my time as you so, and I was a little unsteady and insane at that time, and um, this is reinforced because Randy, who is the Jisha today was my Benji, and considerably more sane and steady than I was. <laughs> so I really appreciated her. Um, so I don't give many Saturday lectures, and for some reason, they seem to often be um, scheduled soon after I've come back from being in the mountains. Um, and so I often tell stories, and I will today, probably about the mountains. Um, and the place that I go is the place that um, I, my family has had a cabin since, um, I don't know, I was five years old. And um, it's quite remote. It's in Washington State, and it's in the North Cascades National Park. And there's no um, available TV or radio or phone service in this valley. And you also can't drive there, so you kind of go and stay. You have to take a, boat, a long boat ride up, up a lake. It's inland, but um, it's, um, it's quite cut off in that way. And um, when I'm there, and I, because it's a long way away and it's hard to get to, we usually stay for quite a long time. And um, because I'm not so busy in my life, I have time to <clears throat> read and, and study and sit a little bit more than usual. 
which I really value and and appreciate. But um, sometimes I feel like I little get a little far out on a limb with my practice in some way, and it's always nice to come back and um, sort of be with people and hear other people's um, ideas and thoughts about the Dharma um, in these lectures and the Monday morning talks and also um, in my Dharma groups, which I really enjoy and my just my talks with friends. Um, so the last several Saturday lectures have either directly or maybe indirectly addressed the fact that this is a kind of tumultuous and difficult time. Um, and um, I would agree with that. And um, <clears throat> Carol, in her lecture, talked about um, finding joy in difficult times. And Hosan also talked about sort of being with these times. And so I've been thinking about it as well. And, um, and thinking about joy really makes me think about the most kind of basic Buddhist um, questions of like, what is suffering? And why do I suffer? And, you know, the, the teachings of, you know, clinging and attachment that we're kind of always revisiting. So quite a few, many, many years ago, and I don't remember quite how this came into my life, but I sort of um, crashed into um, a poem that was written in the sixth century um, called the Xin Xin Ming, or trust or faith in mind, which probably many of you are familiar with. Um, it was attributed or written by a sixth century Chinese monk named, this is the best pronunciation I can do, Sun Sun. Um, and I'm just gonna diverge here for a minute because when people in these lectures would mention um, teachers from the past, I was confused often because many of them were referred to by their Chinese names and other times they were referred to by their Japanese translation names and you know I was kind of always trying to place them so <clears throat> Sung San um, is the third patriarch when we chant on Tuesday and Thursday mornings the long list of um, sort of Buddhas and ancestors, um, we chant um, Bodhidharma's name, Bodhidharma. That's the first Chinese, you know, he came from India to China in the, you know, early sixth century. And, um, and then um, there's, you know, he transmitted to a second patriarch. And then the third one is Sung San. So um, in our lineage, which is translated into Japanese, um, his name is Kanchi Sosan. And he's not often referred by that name, I don't think. But um, 
So I think this poem is thought of as sort of a coming together of um, the Taoism that had flourished in China before Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma arrived and the sort of more hierarchical and ritualized Buddhism that Bodhidharma brought with him to China. And it sort of flowed into um, what is called Chan or our Zen Buddhism. And um, I think this poem is looked upon as sort of an expression of that. And um, so I'll just read you the first lines. You're probably familiar with them because they really show up almost verbatim um, throughout our Zen literature. Um, and so this is the first four lines. <clears throat> the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are infinitely set apart. So, you know, I, I'd heard some of these ideas before, but this was so stark and sort of radical that it just really woke me up. And, um, you know, it, it, I just ended up, and I've continued to, to sort of, you know, talk about it and think about it and, and involve myself with it, you know, over the, over the past many years. Um, but before I really get going, I want to say two things that really come up every time almost that I talk with people about this. And um, the first one, it certainly came up for me, <clears throat> was um, uh, that Sun Sun, um, very little is known about him. Um, but, and one of the reasons for that is because um, you know, Buddhism was being repressed, I think, at the time. That's my understanding. And so he spent a lot of his life in um, kind of uh, hiding, I think. And also um, a lot of the written records of that time were destroyed uh, in this effort to suppress whatever was going on. And um, so I don't want to, like, I want to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. And this is partly because I spent a lot of time alone in the mountains that, you know, maybe he did get to a place where he actually had no preferences or even saw that for a moment. Um, and, you know, I just, I just want to say that I don't want to, I don't know. And I kind of like to entertain that idea a little bit. Um, you know, kind of this was a enlightenment poem that he, he really saw that possibility. Um, but more contemporary writers, um, and um, that includes Dogen in the 13th century, allow that we all do have preferences, just as we have thoughts. And, um, you know, I'm not sure there's even a difference between thoughts and preferences. Um, and that having them is, is as human as having thoughts. And um, that is, our, you know, it's our attachment, or maybe some people use the word addiction, 
to our preferences that is the source of suffering. Um, and Dogen says, this is a very familiar quote also, although everything has Buddha nature, we love flowers and we do not care for weeds. And then, but flowers fall though we love them, weeds grow though we hate them. That is just how it is. And Suzuki Roshi commenting on that, we should accept weeds despite how we feel about them. If you do not care for them, do not love them. If you love them, then love them. <clears throat> so kind of, uh, you know, life is gonna go on to be what it is regardless of what we like and what we dislike, what we want. Um, so maybe a more, another more contemporary translation um, might be, the great way has no difficulty, just avoid choice and attachment. Um, so, you know, we have preferences. We just, I like chocolate, I don't like vanilla, I like basketball, I don't like baseball. Um, and the second thing that I'll say before I go on is that this does not mean we take no action. Um, again, it sounds a little bit like we just accept everything the way it is, but um, I think, you know, it. I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but um, it means for me, not taking action that's driven by my desires and my clinging. And that it does involve accepting the world the way it is and taking action from there rather than, you know, from fear or self-righteousness or self-centered motivations. And I will talk a little bit more about that. Um, so as I say, I've sort of thought about and played with these ideas for a long time, as I'm sure many of you have. Um, and um, one of the words that comes to my mind that I like a lot is um, unsatisfactoriness. Um, that we, you know, like our world to be just a little bit different a lot of the time. Um, we'd like to adjust the universe to make us more comfortable rather than let it be the way it is. Um, Suzuki Roshi said, let things be as they are or as they is or just this. It sounds so simple. But I think to really understand what this means is really to understand why our practice is difficult. At least that's how I feel about it. Uh, when we pay attention, we can notice our constant effort to, to change just the littlest things about ourselves, to manipulate the world internally and externally. We don't want to be with our fear, our anger, our weakness, our sorrow. The list is endless. I have my list. You probably have yours. We'd like to adjust our partner a little, our health, 
our salary, our children. <laughs> um, Dan Jackson gave a very wonderful way-seeking mind talk a few weeks ago, and he talked about having to um, uh, let go of his fantasy children and relate to his real children. And I really liked that image a lot. Um, you know, we, we do have our ideas about how people should be, and certainly our children. Um, so you might be wondering where I think the happiness or the joy is in all of this. Um, and I would say that for me, um, those moments, and they're often very tiny moments of stepping back and just releasing a little bit the clinging, um, really just for a moment, I can let go and I soften a little and um, open to what's actually so and to what life is. I relax. And I do let things be the way they are, and that includes myself um, for an instant, sometimes longer, feeling like I'm part of some flow. And then, quick, something catches me, someone criticizes me, the Supreme Court does something I don't like, someone I love is hurt. Sojin talked often, very often, about letting go and becoming one with our circumstances. And um, he talked about one koan really frequently, and one that I'm sure most of you are very familiar with. Um, and this is our kind of short version with a little commentary <clears throat> by a Rinzai teacher um, named Maureen Stewart. Um, <clears throat> a monk asked Tozan, that's in our lineage, Tozan Ryokai. Um, in Chinese, his name is Dong Shan, and he's later, sort of maybe 11 people later than Bodhidharma in the ninth century. Um, so this is the koan. Where is the place where there is not heat or cold? Tozan replied, when it is cold, let it be so cold that it kills you. When it is hot, let it be so hot that it kills you. Don't resist. This is Marine Stewart. When it is hot, become one with the heat. When it is cold, become one with the coldness. Don't resist whatever it is. When cold, shiver. When hot, sweat. And I think the line from the poem, or it gets restated over the years in different forms, just a hair's breadth of difference and heaven and earth are infinitely set apart, is the thought or the preference or the commentary. I wish it were warmer. This is wrong. I can't stand this pain. We step outside and we comment. We separate. 
And I, I just want to tell you that when I was thinking about this talk and writing some of it, um, I happened to talk to Alex Sanaki um, about, because I was spending time in Washington State about possibly going to um, the Dahoma Monastery in, um, on Whidbey Island and sitting a session with Harada Roshi. And um, I, um, I sort of asked Alex about it and he said, well, Harada Roshi was coming in September, but probably that session was full, but maybe I could go to the one in February. And then he said, but be sure to bring a lot of warm socks. And I thought, oh my God, it's gonna be freezing. I can't do that. That was right when I was thinking about this particular koan. That was a little ironic. Um, so I, I wanna talk about um, sort of kind of my experience with this a little bit more. Um, I've talked a lot in the past about the fact that I um, have migraine headaches and I've had them pretty severely from about the time I was 20 to um, maybe when I was 60. Um, and now I get considerably fewer, but I still get them occasionally. And um, Often during those years, um, I had a lot of um, balls in the air. Um, I had a family and a dance company and, um, you know, a partner and a, my parents were aging. And, um, you know, I was kind of trying to keep everything going a lot. And um, so, when I felt like I was going to get a headache, and I didn't ever get the kind of flashing lights kind of migraines. I just got the pain. And, um, but I would know when it was coming a little bit. And I would, you know, sort of try to finish things and get things in order. Um, but at a certain point, I would just have to give up. And, you know, I would let my kids have Cheerios for dinner and watched television and, um, you know, wouldn't finish my grant application and um, I would just lie down. And, you know, even though I was in sort of serious pain, there was sort of a joy in that of just, you know, putting my burden down. Um, and it was almost every time I was just like, I just gave up. And um, so, it was a funny kind of combination of things. And I never really um, accepted the pain. I, I can't say I ever said, oh, you know, I'm one with the pain. I really didn't. And I never have, and I probably never will. But um, still, there was a moment of just giving up. And um, there was a, a real, there was a joy in that, I will say. Um, so now I'm going to get back to um, a little bit about taking action. 
And um, there's a lot that could be said about this. Um, and um, but I'm just going to tell a little story from the mountains. So um, we have this cabin, and my father bought it 55 years ago. And um, we love it. Um, and, um, you know, I go there a lot. My children go there now. My grandson goes there. Um, and there's a big river behind the house. And um, the river is really beautiful. Um, it's glacial, so it's um, got silt in it, and it turns this beautiful turquoise color. And um, in the summer, it's a wild river. You know, it has rocks and trees and stumps and roots in it, and it, you know, it hits those things and goes around them. But basically, it's um, just a lovely flow. Um, but in the spring and in the fall, um, depending on the year, but more frequently now due to climate change, um, the river, um, you know, when it's raining a lot or when there's a fast melt off and it gets hot very quickly, uh, the river gets larger and fuller. And, um, and it, the whole place is, the whole place of Stahican, Washington is really a valley, which is a floodplain and over you know, the last hundred years, the river has moved back and forth across the floodplain. And when my father bought the cabin, right away he said, someday this cabin will flood. And, um, and he kept saying it, really, till he died. Um, so he was sort of at peace with that, but <clears throat> um, as I say, we love it. And um, so um, about quite a long time ago now, it, the, the, the house actually did flood. And um, there was about, I don't know, 18 inches of water flowing through it. Um, but, you know, we cleaned it out and we sort of fixed it up. And so it still stands. Um, but um, we've also now done what they call mitigation, which is that we've actually wrapped the entire house in sort of a plastic rubbery special material. So it looks kind of like it has a diaper on it. Um, but that material won't keep the water out, but it will keep the silt out so it won't fill up with mud. So we've done that and we've sandbagged certain parts of the property. So, um, you know, theoretically that will keep the water flowing if it comes over the bank back toward the river. And then we've um, felled some dead trees, again, for the same purpose. But when the water starts to rise, um, oh, one thing I want to say is that um, it's so powerful that it actually um, makes the boulders in the river start to roll so that um, there's this really ominous roaring and grinding all night long. And that's when you know that it's time to leave. Um, but we're actually not usually there in the spring that early in the fall. Um, so we come back to California. And then everybody in the family, I think, has a little app on their email where we get notified when the river starts to rise. 
And uh, here we are in California. And plus, you know, there's not anything we could do even if we were there. I mean, it's a national park. We can't dredge the river or anything. So, you know, it's just going to do what it does. Um, but still, you know, when the river starts to rise and we get this little notification, we start looking at the graph and it's going up and up and up. We're like, you know, we cling. We, you know, it makes us nervous and we are calling each other and, you know, did you see the river's gone over 12,000 cubic feet per second? Um, and then, you know, we kind of look at each other and we take a step back and we say, what's going to happen is going to happen. And again, that just that moment, and it really could last just a moment, is kind of a, it's such a sort of wonderful moment, such a teaching moment for me. So, and then, you know, we're back into like emailing our neighbors and everything. So, um, so that's sort of a, a little metaphor for taking action. Um, you do what you can and then you let go. Um, I want to say also a word about Zazen. Um, you know, Dogen calls it the Dharma gate of ease and joy. And, um, you know, we are, in a way, it's really great to do it with people. I, I do it a lot alone when I'm in Stahikin, and it's always very much easier for me to do it when I'm with people. Um, but, you know, we have a safe space. I think we all create a safe space for ourselves. Um, and then, you know, our practice is to really allow things to be the way they are. That's our practice. And um, so, you know, we allow our breath to be the way it is. There are many practices. I've done a lot of yoga where, you know, you're, you know, doing like things to change the breath and really affect the breath. But that's not what we do. We let it be the way we is way it is whether we like it or we don't and um, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable and um, you know we sit with the physical sensations we have um, you know certainly pain in our knees but you know sometimes I just feel restless or you know irritable or you know just some kind of physical thing that I just sit with um, you know, certainly the sounds, and sometimes this sandal can be full of lovely sounds like the morning doves or not so lovely sounds like the chainsaws or something. Um, and then our thoughts and our feelings. Um, you know, our thoughts, our thoughts, our thoughts. I remember when I was she so, uh, I was going to give a talk and I went to see Sojin and I said, you know, I've been sitting all morning, but I'm not really doing meditation. I'm just thinking about my talk nonstop. And he just looked at me and he said, of course. <laughs> I've had to remember that often. And that could be true with an emotion too, for me, where, you know, if somebody's gotten angry at me or, or fear is another big one for me. Um, you know, sometimes I'll just sit and actually 
turn toward it rather mostly I want to kind of push it away but when I'm sitting I can turn toward it and also um, you know my mind will be racing and I can you know I just there's nothing I can do about it it's sort of like the river you know um, I just have to sit with it and then I also want to say a word about bowing. Um, again, this wasn't something I was totally familiar with when I started practicing, and it seemed a little, um, I don't know what, odd to me. Um, but maybe this is kind of my dancer perspective on it. But, you know, we talk in our practice a lot about being upright. But, um, you know, I kind of think of my rib cage and my spine sort of like, you know, as protective or sort of armor. And, and they actually are, you know, they protect our heart and our lungs, our really vital organs, even our kidneys. And, um, but when we bow, um, you know, even a standing bow, you know, we, we soften that, we soften the sternum, the breastbone, and, um, and we fold. And, and when we do a full bow, you know, we really soften and we really fold and sort of surrender, you know, we bend. And, um, and then, you know, I feel like when I put my head down on the ground, I'm like putting all my preferences and my thoughts and my, you know, ideas about myself down and, and really lifting life kind of up above for a moment. And um, so that's my little dance interpretation of bowing. Um, and I'm gonna end with a poem, and I've actually read this poem before, but it seems to fit in here well. So I'll just finish with this. This is by Ajahn Chan, who was a Theravadan forest monk, um, quite contemporary, but he's not alive. Um, <clears throat> so try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. <laughs> so I'm going to stop there. And if anybody on Zoom or in the Zendo would like to make a comment or ask a question. So Preston. Good morning, Ellen. Good morning, Preston. You mentioned uh, that you weren't sure you've ever been one with your own pain. And I was wondering uh, what you think it means or what, what you think it would feel like to be one with your own pain. Well, I didn't really say that I had never been one with my own pain. I just said with my migraines. <laughs> so I, it's almost like I have a you know, I just have a position about it. You know, it's, I can't, I can't explain it. I just refuse, um, you know, to accept. That's just all there is. And I suffer. 
But that's just that one thing. I, I do accept other pain, Preston, but just that one thing, I just, just makes me too mad, I think. So, that's just how it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, really interesting comments uh, just now. I had migraines when I was young, you know, literally from about the age of nine or 10. And I, I never thought about it to this moment, but I think they were my first really in-depth teaching of impermanence. Hmm. It's like, this is coming, this is arriving. I had to act, you know, my, I used to take really hot showers, uh -huh. you know, and then lie down in a completely dark room, but I was completely alone. You know, nobody was taking care of me in this. I had to figure out how to do it. And I knew that it was going to move. Right. That um, is the blessing of migraines. Right? But it was a further blessing that I experienced. I don't know if you experienced it or other people did. When it was over, yes, there was a period of absolute luminous clarity, just like what Achan Shah was saying, that was, it was almost worth the headache. <laughs> That's saying a lot. You know, but the, the tuness was like, yes, I wanted this to end. Yeah, I think that's actually a medical thing. I think people talk about that. Uh, it's sort of like the podrome or something. There's a word for it. The post-migraine uh -huh. syndrome, and it is a wonderful it thing. It was incredible. <laughs> and again, it's like, that was something at the age of nine or 10, I had to, I just discovered for myself, nobody told me. Right. But again, I feel like, you know, it's kind of like you did take action, you know, you did, you know, sort of like the serenity prayer. We do what we can do. Right. And then we yeah, have to but I also knew, I also gave up to it too, I think, but you were talking. Right. About it. it just very, I hadn't thought about it for years, but you just completely wrote it back. Yeah. Russ? Thank you, Ellen. Um, I too have heard the morning doves uh, here in the Zendo. Uh, it's a really pleasant. Um, ambiance to Zazen. And uh, this morning, Heiko and I, during work period, with a saw, were chopping up wood in the garage that we had found underneath the uh, Zendo uh, to be disposed of. And it wasn't a pleasant sound per se compared to the uh, morning dove, but the morning dove would not have cut up that wood that we needed to tend to. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about these things that arise that we experience as pleasant or unpleasant, and then the change that sometimes pleasant is unpleasant and sometimes unpleasant is pleasant or appropriate. Um, as a practice. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, think what, what comes to my mind is, you know, kind of holding it lightly, you know, um, that we sort of, you know, observe that pleasure with the morning doves, you know, and then we observe, you know, I mean, I observe that I don't like the sound of chainsaws, you know, and, you know, I don't want to get into this because I don't feel at all 
but it is does seem karmic in a way to me. You know, like, you know, my sister, actually, I'll just say about chainsaws. My sister, when I was little, we slept in the same room, and she told me that chainsaws were um, kidnappers coming to get us. <laughs> uh, and I don't know how much that really, you know, but I'm just saying that, you know, we, you know, it is like, why do we like morning doves and not chainsaws? But also to just observe it, because really, it's just who we are. Um, Linda Hess, would you like to unmute? Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was just, um, I was thinking that the question, uh, do you have a preference for your cabin not to be flooded by the river? <laughs> just that's a sort of like an opening. <laughs> I'm thinking about a possible other alternative translations for the opening of the Shinshin Ming. So it started with that question. Yes. You you have a preference. I have a preference. That it would not, yeah. So having that preference isn't, you've said this today, having that preference is not the problem. Um, like Sojin said, of course that's what you're doing. Of course you have that preference. So I, I was just trying to think of whether, like, I think I'm the master of translations, right? I can decide whether the translation is okay. The, the translation that the way is not difficult for those who have no preferences is very provocative. So maybe that's good. Like, it makes you mad. It makes you say, that's ridiculous. So maybe that's good. But I was trying to think of something a little more subtle in the direction of, for those who are free from preferences or for those who aren't consumed by their preferences or something like that. Yeah, I think, uh, I do I think, I think, think we should change the translation. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I definitely do. And it has been changed. It's been translated many times and many people are a little less sort of hardball. <laughs> okay. But you still gave us the, Hardball. I did, because that's the first version, and I also, you know, want to be open to the possibility, the possibility that you could have a moment of no preferences. I just want to be open to that. Oh, yeah. We can have such a moment. We've had such a moment. It lasted at least like one-tenth of a second. Okay. We've, we've definitely had such a moment. But just the question of which words are more helpful to people practicing. Well, I did read a second um, translation, which I think is more contemporary and probably, you know, less people are less caught by. But I don't know, I guess for me, I was, it was important to be caught by it. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Bye. Oh, Mary. Yeah, following along on that, um, thank you for your talk. Um, but following along what uh, Linda is talking about, I wonder if it isn't so much the problem of translation as the problem of words generally um, to describe, because English presents a, some of the same difficulty, you know, when we talk about, um, I mean, I think, it, is it possible, this is my question, 
Is it possible to not like something, but not tense up about it and resist it? Right. So the, the pride, it's not about the preference so much, it's about the, the clenching that right. happens. The attachment, the clinging. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, that, and that that's, that's a subtle distinction that gets lost in preference. Like you imagine that you have to be so completely neutral about things right. rather than unclenched about things. Right. I was reading something from Kyogen uh, Carlson, who was the abbot Dharma Rain, and he used the word non-opposition. Mm -hmm. That's good. Actually, spoke to me because it wasn't something I was doing. I wasn't surrendering, and I wasn't, you know, letting go or these action. It was a state of non. You know. Yeah, I know. For me, it's a little. I mean, I, I think actually the poem I read is sort of more like that. For me, that's a little bit passive, but that's just for me. You know, I think I am somebody who who has a lot of sort of strong attachments and feelings. So for me, that sort of backward step is, or maybe it's a dance thing, you know, maybe it's, it's the lie for me. But I really hear what you're saying, that that's, um, you know, that's a better word for you. And yeah, for me, the edge that I'm working is to step back from doing right. into being. Right. Yeah, no, it's good. And that's sort of what I mean about being with you all, you know, is that, you know, I, I can go way out in one direction and then, you know, somebody will give another facet and it's really good. Um, Bob. Hi, uh, thank you so much for your share. Um, <clears throat> you know what, um, what uh, hit me was when you said that you were really, um, I don't know if I'm saying, that you're really thinking, not doing the Zazen, and you told, I believe it was Sojin, you told him that, um, that you weren't, you were just worried about your, your your share and he said to you of course you are and you know you've been talking about our change of consciousness um in various ways and i really enjoyed your share so how how did that wake you up and what way did you move towards the um towards the uh awareness that uh it's okay to um to uh be a little obsessed or whatever that's normal how was that for you just out of curiosity oh that was a really nice question i like it um uh i have a busy mind and um and you know not always but often and I, you know, have been, I've judged myself for it and criticized myself for it and tried not to be quite so busy in my mind. And um, so, you know, his gift to me was really like, it's fine. And 
sometimes it's not busy and sometimes it is busy. And, you know, I just, you know, stop trying to control it, which I, you know, I did a little or judge it or whatever I was doing. But, um, you know, I really felt like, you know, this isn't Zazen. This is not Zazen, what I'm doing. It was really very helpful. And to this day, it's helpful. And it sounds like it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, you. you know, I did a fair amount of it today, too, just so you know. <laughs> me too. Me too. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, Hakel. Thank you, Ellen, for your talk. And, and this is really a, a lot of people have been saying or talk, asking about this just the same way. But my question is about when you read that poem last, I got the idea that, uh, from it that the, the pond would calm down and things would come and go to the pond. So I would ask you, what is it that is calmed that allows the pond to be still? And then what is it that comes to the pond? And what's the difference? Um, I might have to ask you for a little clarification. But, um, uh, you know, I just feel like for me, um, there are times when my zazen is very, very active, and there are times when it's not. And, um, you know, there's times when I'm open to the world, and there's times when I'm kind of closed and, and resisting it. So sort of to make room for all of that is for me the still point you know to not push any of it away which is really you know it's really a kind of weird concept almost to just you know let myself be i mean i can I, you know just say i was once in a dharma group actually when somebody just got furious at me in the dharma group and um, it was very, um, you know, I, I didn't feel like he had a good reason to do that. But for the next couple of days, I, my mind was just like defending myself nonstop. I mean, it just, I mean, I'd go to sleep, I'd be defending myself, I'd get up in the morning, I'd be defending myself, you know, just like, and, um, you know, I just, I knew there was nothing I could do about it. I just knew that. You know, I, I just couldn't stop it. And, you know, then, and I also knew that slowly, 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 it would stop. And, you know, two or three days later, it was over. But I, I just was like, okay, you know, this is crazy, but this is what I'm doing. So that's, is that an answer to your question? Well, yes, it is. And then my question to follow up is uh, after that, Defending is settled. Is that a better state? No. <laughs> but it's more comfortable. <laughs> um, Jerry? Um, hi, thank you for your provocative talk, Ellen. Um, I wanted to another word uh, that Sojin and I talked about a fair amount, which is affinity for. 
Hmm. Um, and that has a different feel to me because it is personal. Um, mm -hmm. it has to do with my causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. and so, and, and how my causes and conditions make some things easier for me or more pleasant for me. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and I, I don't use the word disaffinity, but that is a better word to me than hatred and rejection. <laughs> you know, it's like, I just happen to have personal affinities. There are people I gel with more and there are people I and there are movies I like and movies I don't. You know, the, it, it's an affinity. It's my own personal individual thing that we all have mm -hmm. that is of course like part of us. Right. It's not it's not a problem to have an affinity, but it is, but when you get into picking and choosing then and making judgments associated with that, mm -hmm. where the problem starts. What do you think about that? Um, I like that word um, a lot. And I also think, you know, there are things I love. You know, I don't just have an affinity for them. I love them. Um, so, um, so I, I, I like the word and I also, you know, just want to kind of keep every possibility open. <laughs> <laughs> it's when the love goes into attachment. Right. But so, well, yeah. even that, you know, I mean, Suzuki Roshi talks about Buddha's attachment. I mean, of course we're going to attach to the people we love. Of course, you know. So it's a it's a sticky wicket. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe one more question. One more question. Oh, we have one more question. Ed. Hey. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. <clears throat> I have a question. Um, I'm curious about what you think our ancestors would say in terms of no, in terms of dealing with the idea of preferences. Because um, I was, I read a, an article today in the newspaper about um, sort of one person from a, a West Virginia state in the United States standing in the way of really doing something about what I feel is um, the survival of our planet and our species. And, you know, our ancestors didn't, I don't know if they lived through anything like that before. So I'm just curious about what you think they would say when faced with that very real possibility. Well, that's a big question. And, you know, of course, I can't really say what they would say. Um, uh, but, you know, what I would say to you, Ed, is that um, uh, you know, you do everything that you're doing to um, make our planet survive. And then you realize that Joe Manchin is going to do whatever he's going to do. You know, there's, you know, there's a, you know, when I, the way I think about it for myself is, you know, I take action 
hopefully out of, you know, a place of not too much self-centeredness. And there are things I care very, very deeply about, as I know there are things you care very, very deeply about. And I do what I do. And, um, you know, it might be less than what another person does. And it might change tomorrow. You know, it really, it could change tomorrow. I could go to Washington and hang out with Jane Fonda and, you know, put a, you know, tie myself to a fit. I really could do that. But right now I'm just doing what I'm doing. And, um, and then, you know, it's sort of like my cabin. I have to allow what's gonna happen to happen, you know? And, you know, if I spend all my time, you know, being unwilling to have things the way they are, I'm pretty unhappy. Hmm. Yeah. Or, or feeling like I should be doing more. You know, that's another, mm. another place I go. I'm just puzzled, you know, the idea of no preference. And I'm struggling with that in terms of what I feel is a real existential question. Yes, well, um, when you solve it, you could tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and you too. <laughs> Beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma. I vow to become it. 